I was there. Eyewitness accounts by survivors of Easter week 1916, presented by Pierce Bersley. Here now is Pierce Bersley to introduce the program. I was there. Today, you have six persons who took part in the rising of Easter week 1916 to tell you of things they saw and things that happened to them during that fateful week when a small handful of Irish fought for the freedom of their country against the forces of the powerful British Empire. As another 1916 veteran, I have been selected to introduce the programme and I feel very proud of the task and the company in which I find myself. First, we have Joe Gilfoyle, who was very young at the time, to tell you of his school days, how he came to join the volunteers and serve the 3rd Battalion in 1916. He afterwards took an active part in the fight against the Black and Tans and rose to high rank in the National Army. In my time in school, say about 45 years ago, the political or national field was a very simple one. Either you were a home ruler and up for Ireland, or you were an anti-home ruler and up for England. I need hardly say that like the majority of boys, I was an ardent home ruler. I well remember the shock I got when I read a newspaper poster outside a shop one day. Did Emmett die for home rule? What on earth did that mean? Sure, of course he died for home rule. Didn't Tone, Lord Edward Fitzgerald, and all the men of 98 die for home rule? What a question. In great confusion of mind, I put the problem to my sister May, who was one of the early Camogie players and a member of the Gaelic League. She explained patiently that home rule was like being allowed to run your own house, provided you ran it the way someone else wanted you to run it the house being Ireland and the someone else being England. She told me that these patriots worked and died for freedom and that this home rule business was what we would now call phony. She gave me copies of Republican papers to read, probably copies of the paper Irish Freedom. I remember going back to school on Monday morning and I was neither fish, flesh nor good red herring. All my pals were home rulers and all my friends were anti-home rulers. I was always a shy going by, and my first timid and awkward attempts to make converts had my friends bewildered. I remember my first attempt to join the Irish Volunteers in 1913. It was quite common in those days to wear short trousers, or knickerbockers as we used to call them, at least up to 16 years of age. Unfortunately, I was so garbed and I was ejected ignominiously from the hall. However, I induced my poor mother to buy me a pair of longers, and I was soon marching and grinning with the best of them. And wasn't I proud to be selected to carry a hoth rifle openly through the streets of Dublin in 1914, at the public funeral for the people shot by the British at Bachelor's Walk? Talk about a dog with two tails. It was a bit of a problem saving up the odd few pence for the arms fund, but somehow we managed. My ambition never got as far as a uniform, but a rifle, a bandolier, a haversack, a water bottle, they were simply a must, and by pinching and scraping they were got together. My brother Sean and I 
went to confession on Easter Saturday night and sallied forth on Easter Monday, saying goodbye to my mother and four sisters. He was a lieutenant in our company and an IRB man, as I learned later. I was a very common foot slogger. Our battalion, the 3rd, occupied positions from Westland Road to Lansdowne Road, including the famous Clan William House and Mount Street Bridge area. The situation there is much too big a subject for this short talk, but there were some numerous incidents which still tickle me. I remember an indignant Jarvie at Westland Row Station, protesting that these manoeuvres were too much of a good thing when I was being put out of the station. Just then firing broke out from the direction of O'Connell Street. On learning this, that this was the real thing, he jumped on the hack, whipped up his horse, and shaking his whip at us, he made a masterly understatement. By gosh, see, I'm telling you, there'll be somebody pulled over this. I remember, too, the awful morning of the surrender. We were standing round in utter dejection when a volunteer with a beaming smile on his face approached us. Now, this poor man was completely deaf, but a confirmed optimist. He shouted as he approached, Did you hear the news, lads? The British are surrendering to us. There was very nearly being another 1916 casualty. Aye, there were great days to be young in. The stir there was, and the hope there was, and maybe a little of the heartbreak too. And today as then, we know that despite the scoffers and the shonings, there are boys and girls as ready as we were to give their all for the land that gave them birth. Next, we have... P.J. Stevenson was one of those who took part in the gallant fight to hold the Medici Institution on the Southern Keys with a handful of men against vastly superior British forces. They fought under the leadership of the heroic Sean Houston, whose statue you must have seen in the Phoenix Park. Sean Houston was first in the Fianna before joining the volunteers, was very young at the time, and so was P.J. Stevenson. When speaking to Fianna Erden, the Irish National Boy Scouts, in 19, February 1914, P.H. Pierce said, Two occasions are spoken of in ancient Irish history, upon which Irish boys marched to the rescue of their country when it was sore beset. Once, when Cahullion and the boy troop of Ulster held the frontier until the Ulster heroes rose, and again when the boys of Ireland kept the foreign invaders in check on the shores of Ventry until Finn had rallied the Fianna. And Pierce gave us another example of his powers to see into the future when he finished his address with these words. It may be that a similar tale shall be told of us, and that when men come to write the history of the freeing of Ireland, they shall have to record that the boys of Fianna Erden stood in the battle gap until the volunteers armed. Now, there is such a tale to be told in the story of Sean Houston and the Medicity Institution on Usher's Island in Easter week, 1916. It was about 11 o'clock on Easter Monday morning when Dublin-born Captain Sean Houston marched away from Liberty Hall in Beresford Place at the head of 13 of a possible 40 members of D Company of the 1st Battalion, Dublin Brigade of the Irish Volunteers, and a boy of Fianna Erne. 
He had been ordered by James Connolly to occupy the Mendicity Institution before 12 o'clock noon. At all costs, he was to prevent the British troops entering the city along the line of the river until his commandant, Ned Daly, had captured the four courts and the Irish Republic had been proclaimed by Pierce reading the proclamation at the General Post Office in O'Connell Street. As the small band of which five were boys marched along the South Keys, it was joined by two men of C Company, and with this small force, Houston took over the Mendicity Institution. Swiftly, it was put into a state of defence. Glass was smashed out of the sashes, sofas and chairs piled into the windows with curtains and cushions rammed in for sandbags. Tables and chairs barricaded the large front entrance doors. Buckets were filled with water in case of fire. Vases and flower pots were smashed into the fireplace to prevent wounds from flying pieces of china. The front iron gates were closed and locked and a line of retreat planned. Houston was just in time because at a quarter past twelve orders were sent to the 10th Royal Dublin Fusiliers in the Royal, now Collins Barracks, to move out to the defence of Dublin Castle, which was being attacked by the Citizen Army. As the 400 men of the Royal Dublins marched onto the quayside, they were ambushed from the Mendicity, and after a sharp engagement, were driven back in disorder. They were reformed in the barracks, and later in the evening, made their first attack against the Mendicity from Queen Street. But for some unexplained reason, although the Royal Dublins had reached the front garden wall under cover of a barrage of rifle and machine gun fire, so heavy as to prevent Houston's small band firing a single shot in reply, they made no attempt to rush the building and drive the garrison out, but retreated to the barracks. As the last British soldier disappeared from view over Watling Street Bridge, the garrison heaved a hearty sigh of relief at their incredible escape from being overwhelmed by sheer weight of numbers alone, for the odds against them were 30 to 1. The rest of the evening passed in quietness, but the garrison kept a sharp lookout while listening to the sound of shooting in the distance. Picking out the sharp crack of the Lee-Enfield rifle and the deep boom of the Hoth gun from the waves of sound rolling over Dublin and announcing to the world that for the seventh time in 300 years, Ireland was asserting her right to national freedom and sovereignty in arms. Tuesday came after a sleepless night of watching. Just after daybreak, Houston inspected his position and apparently decided to hold on. A messenger was sent to report to GHQ at the post office, and confirmation of his decision came early in the afternoon when, led by the young Fianna scout, 12 men of the Fingal Brigade under Lieutenant Dick Coleman ran the gauntlet of the encircling British forces and reached the Mendicity without loss. Except for a slight skirmish after the arrival of the men from Swords, Rush and Lusk, there was little to be seen of the British soldiers throughout the day. But the noise of the soldiers punching through from house to house on the Kingsbridge side of the Mendicity made it clear that they were closing in for another attack. So Tuesday was another sleepless night for the garrison. The final assault came on Wednesday afternoon. From the high houses in Thomas Street, the back of Houston's fort was raked with continuous rifle fire. On the riverside, rifle and machine gun fire lashed the front and under cover of the front garden wall, Mortar shells and hand grenades were fired in through the windows. The position became desperate. With little ammunition and outnumbered by superior forces, the garrison had but two alternatives. 
to hold on until they were wiped out or to surrender. And like a good soldier who retreats from a hopeless position, Captain Houston decided to surrender. He had accomplished his task and even more than his task. His original orders were to hold this house for three hours. And he held it for three days. He prevented reinforcements reaching the castle for the day and delayed the attack on the forecourts from the west until Thursday. After the surrender, the garrison were all tried by court-martial in Richmond's now Kyo barracks and sentenced to death, with the exception of three boys who were sentenced to 12 months hard labour. All the death sentences but one were commuted to hard labour for periods of two to three years. The one death sentence was carried out when Sean Houston, a pupil of the Christian Brothers at Great Strand Street and North Richmond Street, Railway Clark at Kingsbridge, Captain of D Company, Director of Training Headquarters Staff Fianna Erden, was executed in Kilmainham Jail on the 8th of May 1916. His body lies in Arbor Hill and an Irish limestone monument to his memory by the Dublin sculptor Lawrence Campbell was erected in the People's Gardens, Phoenix Park, in 1943. When Houston learned he was about to be called to join the high company of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, Wolf Tone and Robert Emmett, he wrote to his sister, a Dominican nun, Let there be no talk of foolish enterprises. I have no vain regrets. And if you really love me, teach the children of the history of their own land and teach them that the cause of Kachalin Hulakan never dies. To Father Albert, who attended him during his last moments on this earth, he said, Remember me to the Fina. Not only men and boys, but women served with us in 1916. Some in the actual fighting. And you're going to hear a very remarkable woman, Miss Margaret Skinner, who came from Glasgow to Dublin to play her part in the rising and was in the forefront of the fray in the Stevens Green area where she was seriously wounded. Miss Skinner is probably well known to some of you girls as a teacher in Dublin. Miss Skinner. On Easter Monday 1916, we set out to challenge the then mighty British Empire to ensure that the children of the nation would be born in freedom, that they would never know the humiliation and shame of living under alien rule or endure the truculence of a foreign soldiery. My part was a very small one, but still I was there. I was born in Scotland of Irish parents and was a member of Cumnamon there. When Countess Markievix, as promised, sent me word of the date of the proposed rising, I came to Ireland on Holy Thursday. I stayed with Countess Markievix and joined the Irish Citizen Army, of which she was an officer. On Easter Monday morning, I was sent by James Conley, Commander-in-Chief of the Dublin area, to scout around the barracks to see if troops were stirring. They were not, and in fact, I learned later that many of their officers were off to the races at Ferry House. On returning to report, I was detailed as dispatch rider for the Stevens Green area under Com Commandant Michael Mallon. When I reached the Green ahead of our contingent, I saw one policeman, the last I saw till the rising was over. They simply disappeared from the streets. I was next sent by Commandant Mallon to learn if troops were leaving Beggar's Bush or Portobello Barracks, but everything was quiet. Next I went to see if the volunteers had occupied Harcourt Street Station. By the time I returned, our men were entrenching themselves in Stevens Green. Commandant Mallon then gave me my first dispatch to headquarters at the GPO, 
where I saw the fruitless attempt on the GPO by the 5th Lancers. Twice on Monday, soldiers from Portobello Barracks attempted an attack on our position at St. Stephen's Green. First they got as far as Portobello Bridge, where they were fired on by our men from the roof of Davies Public House. The second time they were turned back in Harcourt Street, when Countess Markievicz and Councillor Partridge fired on them, killing two of their officers. On Monday night we camped out in Stephen's Green, but during the night British troops had gained possession of the Shelburne Hotel, and at four o'clock in the morning they started machine gun fire on us. This made it impossible for us to stay in the green, so it was decided to take possession of the College of Surgeons. We lost one of our boys, James Fox, who was killed before we left the green. I was then sent to bring in 16 men who were guarding Mason Street Bridge, who would otherwise have been cut off from us. They all arrived safely at the College of Surgeons. I had ridden ahead to report to Commandant Mallin, and as he stood listening to me, a bullet whizzed through his hat. He took off his hat, looked at it without comment, and put it on again. This hat may be seen in the 1916 section in the National Museum. On Wednesday, we spent most of our time sniping at the British from the roof of the College of Sur Surgeons, and on Wednesday night, Commandant Mallon sent two squads to cut off some British who had planted a machine gun on the roof of University Church. I was in charge of one squad of four men. When we reached the building at the foot of Harcourt Street, which was to be set on fire, Councillor Partridge burst the lock of the door with his rifle butt. The rifle went off and the flash revealed our position to the enemy who were in the Sinn Féin bank opposite. I turned to call the men to come on, heard a volley and fell wounded. I was carried out to the street and there lay Fred Ryan, a lad of 17. He was dead. I was carried back to the College of Surgeons and had my wounds attended to. And although so badly wounded, I had to laugh when the men and women around me took a cough which I was trying to suppress as the death rattle. I remained in the College of Surgeons till the surrender when I was sent to St. Vincent's Hospital. All reports that came to me there were of death and prison sentences. Day after day the executions went on. Even James Conley, badly wounded, was placed in a chair and shot. Countess Markievicz received a life sentence. As you know, children, we did not win a military victory in 1916, but we roused the people, and all over the country men joined in the fight for independence and rid at least part of our country of the foreign army that had held us in bondage for hundreds of years. I will finish by reading to you the tribute paid to the men and women who fought in 1916 by Patrick Pierce in his last proclamation. For four days they have fought and toiled, almost without sleep, and in the intervals of fighting they have sung the songs of freedom of Ireland. If they do not win this fight, they will at least have deserved to win it, but win it they will, although they may win it in death. Already they have won a great thing. They have redeemed Dublin from many shames and made her name splendid among the names of cities. Another who fought as an officer in the Stephen Green area was Harry Nichols, who will give you an account of his experiences. Harry Nichols. On Easter Monday morning, having waited for orders which did not arrive, I set out on my bicycle to find out how things stood. Having met some other volunteers who also had not got their orders, I cycled into the city. As I crossed the canal at Charlemont Bridge, 
I saw what I took to be British military activity at Portobello Bridge and assumed what I afterwards found to be wrong, that the British were seizing all the bridges. On the way in, I met Liam O'Brien, whose book giving an account of his experiences during the week is well worth reading. And having heard from him that the citizen army held the green, we agreed to join in there. The rest of the day was spent in the green, near the corner of Cuff Street. Trenches were dug, guards stationed near the railings, but things on the whole were quiet. Later that night I was brought out in a small patrol led by Commandant Mallon and Madame Markovics. We went up Harcourt Street, across to Camden Street, and back by York Street. Some volunteers making their way to the GPO were met. Jacobs, occupied by our forces, was grim and silent, but some of my friends who were there told me afterwards that they remembered seeing us marching by. As soon as it was light, some of us were sent to take up positions on the roofs of houses between Cuff Street and York Street, and a few hours later we were withdrawn into the College of Surgeons, which the main body, having evacuated the green, had occupied during the morning. This building was quickly put into a state of defence, and we were encouraged by a lucky discovery of the rifles and ammunition belonging to the College of Surgeons OTC. That night, Commandant Mallon put me in charge of the guards, and it was a curious experience to have to explore in the long, dark passages and to find and visit the sentries on duty at their various posts. The next morning, I was sent to take over the force defending the building, which was then the Turkish Baths. It is now the Green Cinema. Some reinforcements from Jacobs had arrived, and most of them were in my section. The first thing to be done was to barricade and prepare for defence the doors and windows, then to divide, up, to divide up our forces so that one half rested while the others were on duty. Four hours of duty were fixed, and any man not on duty had to lie down and rest. Without some arrangement like that, the men would have been worn out in a short time. As it was, when the end came, all the men, though tired, were well able to have carried on for many days. All the time we kept in regular touch with headquarters and the section beyond us. The back entrance to the college was only a few yards from the back of the Turkish baths along the lane. Regular reports were sent in by orderlies, and each day a personal report was made and orders received. Food was looked after by the common man in the college. We had two members attached to us, and they got our supplies from the main section and looked after us very well, although the quantities available were not too great. In that connection, it is worthwhile telling that on Saturday I started to explore to find my way to a confectioner's between our house and the college. I found a room with shelves full of chocolates, guarded by one of the men from the next section. After some parley, he agreed that we should share, and I brought up to our quarters a few pounds of chocolates which I put by as an iron ration, but they were never used by us. Saturday evening, fires were to be seen all over the city. Various rumours had, of course, been coming in, and although few of them had much foundation, there was a general anticipation of a climax. On Sunday morning, an officer's conference was called for by Commandant Mallon. Before a word was spoken, it was obvious that the situation was very serious. The Commandant then read us the order to surrender, signed by Pierce and countersigned by James Connolly, and told us, as far as he knew, what had happened. Some for a moment thought we should fight on, but it was realised 
that the commander's orders should be obeyed. Commandant Mellon said he expected that leaders like himself would be shot, but that nothing much would happen to the majority of the men. I returned and got my section together and marched them into the college. Our arms were then heaped on the floor and the Commandant ordered those of us who were standing at the head of the sections to join the general body. They know Madame Markovics and myself, he said. There is no need to give them any further information about those in command. And so, with the British soldiers drawn up in York Street, we marched out, headed by Commandant Mellon and Madame Markovics, and with a strong force guarding us, we were marched up to Richmond, now Kyo Barracks. The General Post Office in O'Connell Street was the centre and symbol of the fight in Dublin. There were the leaders and the General Headquarters. There were Pearson Connolly. You're going to hear the story of Sean McGarry, who was there on General Headquarters staff, and in close touch with Tom Clark, Sean McDermott and Connolly. Sean McGarry played a prominent part in the struggle of later years including a sensational escape from an English jail. Sean McGarry. The occupation of the GPO in 1916 becomes important more because of the destruction by the British in their efforts to subdue its garrison than of the actual fighting done by that garrison. Their hesitation to attack may be due to the fact that the post office was advertised as headquarters and was presumed to be more heavily occupied. So few were we that it did not occur to any of us that it would be deemed necessary to destroy whole streets to get at us. This kept us in a state of suspense and expectancy, so that during the whole time we were kept on the alert expecting an attack. We had with us five members of the provisional government. Tom Clark, his eyes sparkling with elation, McDermott in joyous mood, Connolly, happy as a schoolboy at a picnic, Plunkett, who was very ill on Sunday, seemed to have taken on a new life, and Pierce, quite as usual, but in high humour. The garrison, to a man, were enthusiastic, and from our entry worked with a will, breaking glass, barricading windows and doors, and generally making preparations to resist attack. Only about half an hour after our entry, we had our only thrill. We saw the lancers advancing towards us from the direction of the rotunda. They were not allowed to come nearer than Cathedral Street. Several shots rang out, killing four of them and two of their horses. The whole troop turned immediately and returned quickly. This put heart into the boys and made them appear, made them eager to see more. After this, things settled down more or less to a pattern. Sniping started shortly after this and was applied to by our men on the roof. This was going on all the time. Now fires broke out in O'Connell Street and were quenched by the brigade. Heavy firing could be heard from all directions. Some spectators continued to stroll along the streets. News filters in from North Circular Road, Fairview, Four Courts, Jacobs, South Dublin Union, North County Dublin, all of it most encouraging. We were continually alerted and prepared for attack which did not come. Night came. We could hear more heavy firing and sniping increased. Our lads kept up their spirits by singing. It was becoming monotonous. Sleep and food became non-essentials. Wednesday, we first heard the boom of artillery. 
The building shook again and again as the shells exploded and they were falling on Liberty Hall. Fire shells then began to fall on the houses opposite and the whole street became a mass of flame. Machine guns sprayed bullets on us and the roof became dangerous. This was the pattern of the Thursday when Connolly going out to place an outpost on Liffey Street was wounded. There was quietness and depression until word came that there was nothing very serious and that he would be with us soon again. Now shrapnel struck the roof, a fire was started and extinguished. Finally, a fire bomb struck us and started a fire which could not be put out. The roof now had to be evacuated as another bomb struck. The flames now grew worse and the fire worked downwards. The wounded were evacuated to Jervis's hospital. With them, after much argument, went the commonamon and the nurses, and later came the order to line up for evacuation. We form up in the yard an exit into Henry Street, which we crossed into Henry Place. We had several wounded here, and O'Rahilly was killed at the corner of Moore Street. We now break into a shop in Moore Street and tunnel towards Parnell Street, where we find we are completely surrounded. A sortie is arranged and called off. The chiefs go into conference, and after what seemed to me an eternity, McDermott called me and with tears falling said, we are, now, we are going to ask the lads to surrender. It would have been far better to go down in a good fight, but it is too late now. We see a flag of truce being prepared, and we go aimlessly from room to room, just waiting. We do not talk, but just look at one another in a kind of it cannot be style until the order comes to line up in the street. Slowly and with leaden feet, we get into Moore Street. Form up under a white flag, we marched into O'Connell Street, where surrounded by what seemed to be hundreds of soldiers, we sorrowfully laid down our arms. So this is the end. We are now bereft of feeling. The hour for which we'd been longing and hoping had come and gone. Our hopes lie buried in a heap of junk in O'Connell Street, and Britain can now tell herself that she has again crushed us forever. Another man who fought in the central area near the GPO was Frank Thornton, who came across from England early in 1915, defying the Conscription Act, to take part in a rising. He afterwards played a big part in the fight against the Black and Tans as a staff officer of General Michael Collins. Frank Thorne has chosen to speak not so much of the fighting in which he was seriously wounded as of the surrender and what befell him and many others after the surrender. Frank Thornton. On Easter week 1916, I was instructed by the Commander-in-Chief, Seamus Connolly, to remain behind in charge of Liberty Hall with a number of citizen army officers and Irish volunteers. We vacated Liberty Hall on Monday evening, and I went as OC Imperial Hotel O'Connell Street, uh, which is situated over Cleary's, and after a, great, after a great week's fighting, we were eventually burned out and retired across Earl Street. Quite a number of my garrison were wounded, including Harry Colley, TD, Noel Lamasse, and myself and some others. And after consolidating our, ourselves in various buildings, we eventually were compelled to surrender. We were brought to the Custom House, where we met quite a number of 
uh, of other garrisons. Uh, and despite the fact we had a number of badly wounded men in our company, we were left out in one of the courtyards of the customers until the following Monday. From the time of surrender until the Monday, Monday afternoon, we were deprived of the ordinary privileges uh, which soldiers get and were even deprived of drinking water. And despite numerous protests from myself and other members of, of our garrison, our wounds were still unattended to. We were then marched to Richmond Barracks, although some of the men were not in a fit condition for a march of this kind after, after the hardship they had gone through. Every day we watched the crowd being mustered on the square of Richmond Barracks and marched off for deportation to England. But I was always kept back. I tried on several occasions to get away with the crowd, but without success. Finally, I was charged, tried by Field General Court Martial, along with Sean McDermott, one of the signatures of the proclamation, Harry Boland and Gerald Crafts. It was a great experience to be with a man of the caliber of Sean McDermott. All these, all those who knew Sean McDermott of that period knew that he walked with difficulty, with the aid of a stick, owing to an old leg injury. And after the court-martial, one of the first acts of his escort, when we were ordered to fall in for our march to Kenmainham jail, was to take a stick away from him. When this happened, Harry Boland came to his rescue immediately and put his arm around him and helped him to walk that long journey to the jail. And Gerald Crafts did likewise for myself. As my right leg by this time I got very stiff and sore from congealed blood from my own wounds. On our way to Kenmainham, the open 21 tram passing by always brought a cheer from somebody, even although rifles were pointed at the offender on every occasion. Old and young men stood at the street corners and saluted us, despite being pushed around. Finally, we reached Kilmainham Jail and Sean McDermott turned round to the three of us, shook hands and said, I'll be shot, and it'll be a bad day for Ireland that I'm not. You fellas will get an opportunity, even if in years to come, to follow on where we left off. Well, Sean was shot like the rest of the signatories, and we, after being transferred to Mount Jai and spending a week there, were sent off to Dartmoor Prison to do ten years' penal servitude. After four or five days in Mount Jai, we were brought down in Black Marais to the North Wall. In the party were Eamon de Valera, Tom Ash, Dr. Dick Hayes, Frank and Jim Lawless of Swords, Jack McCardle, Liberty Hall, Con Donovan, Gerald Crofts, Harry Boland, and Professor Pather Slattery of St. Andrews. I remember well when the boat was sailing down the Liffey, Gerald Crofts singing The Last Limps of Erden. We arrived at Princetown Station and were marched from there to Dartmoor Prison. Incidentally, all our party were in volunteer uniforms. There were twelve in our party that night, and as far as I can remember, at least six of them, six of the twelve were wounded. As I mentioned earlier, 
No, no attention, good, bad or indifferent, had been given to the wounded after the surrender, resulting in the bandages in every case being firmly adhered to the wounds. The doctor at Dartmoor Prison was not particularly perturbed at this and ordered the, the warders to remove all bandages. This was done in such a rough manner that in all cases, when they pulled away the bandage, the scab of the wound came with it. After an examination by the doctor, we were issued with old clothing which had been worn by previous convicts. Our wounds were not dressed again, nor did we even get back the old bandage. Needless to remark, we passed a very pleasant night. <coughs> we were all fingerprinted, photographed and numbered on our first day in Dartmoor. The method implied in all these convict prisons was to allocate a letter of the alphabet to each, each year. The letter for our particular year was the letter Q. My number was Q96. This number was, stand on, was stamped on every article of wearing apparel. The daily routine of the prison at Dartmoor ended in 1916 when we were all transferred to uh, Lewis Jail together with those from Portland and Parkhurst Jails. It was not long until the Council of Action was formed in Lewis with Eamon de Valier as OC. A demand was made for treatment as prisoner of war, but this was refused. The Council of Action immediately ordered that Lewis Jail be smashed up. This was done in no uncertain fashion. A general mobilisation of warders, police and fire brigades on the British side followed, and after a week's scrap, we were battered, hosed and finally handcuffed and sent back to Dartmoor, Portland and Parkhurst, where we had won. In three weeks, we were all released unconditionally and returned to Dublin to reorganise ourselves for the continuity of the fight that brought about the truce of 1921. I was there, some eyewitness accounts by the survivors of the 1916 Rising. The program was presented by Pyrrhus Bersley, and the recorded voices were those of Sean McGarry, Paddy Stevenson, Harry Nichols, Murray Nishkinadora, Joe Gilfoy, and Frank Thornton. <laughs> <laughs>